Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, and with my co-host, Sean the Sheep Sheetham. Oh, wow. I'm bringing yes. up the nickname again. All right. Yes. Well, I mean, if, if, if uh, nicknames are appropriate on the podcast, uh, then uh, I might have to bring up your face there, Dan. Ooh. ooh. Yes. Dan is Dan, Dan the, the face Vincent. The dad jokes are coming. The dad jokes are coming. Anyways, um, we have... Um, we have kind of a packed episode today. Uh, we were supposed to have Pastor Jeff Johnson on. Um, he he has not come yet, um, so we, he might hop on and we might switch. So this might be a very interesting episode, but uh, we'll see what happens. But we're today we're going to be talking about uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, we're going to be diving into Chapter Four a little bit. Before we do so, we got to do our self promotion here. First of all, um, go to, if you would like some more information, more reading, more material, go to our blog at www, or is it HTTPS, theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, we try to write there weekly and you find some really good material there. Um, we also are on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. If you want to find us on YouTube, it's at The Particular Baptist. Uh, you can find our channel there. Subscribe, hit the bell to get the latest videos. Um, and finally, we are promoting new shirts. Do you see the one Sean is wearing there? We just got these in from Custom if Inc. If you're watching video, if you can see it. Yes, obviously. if you're watching video, you can see it. Um, we've already posted the link for this on our Facebook page. and We can, uh, we can on, include on it in the description for the video. For oh, that's a good YouTube. point. Yeah, we can do that yeah. as well. Um, but all the proceeds are going to our church, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia. Um so feel free to get on there, buy a shirt, and um, and help us out. So with that, I will turn it over to Sean. Uh, introduce our topic. Yeah. So today will be a little, maybe less focused. Um, we are doing this a little bit last minute. Normally, we like to have an outline of uh, what we're going to do, but uh, we don't really have uh, have it for this topic. But um, this is basically uh, this is going off of a lesson Dan actually did for our church last week. So we're going to be talking about uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, Chapter 4, and uh, focusing on Paragraph 1. Uh, the Chapter 4 is of creation, and I'll just read Paragraph 1 here. Uh, In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. So, um, what do you what what do you think's uh, very important about this uh, paragraph there, Dan? So, I kind of want to preamble this a little bit. Um, the chapter four it's it's a small chapter. It's only made up of three paragraphs. Um, it parallels it, word for word essentially with the Westminster Confession of Faith. The only difference is there is a um, structure change. I think the last sentence of um, the second paragraph, I think it was, became the third paragraph. Um, so it, it's, it reads exactly the same, and I think that this shows the unity that our particular Baptist forefathers had with their Presbyterian brethren, um, and I, I think that's important to emphasize. So they agreed 100% with the Westminster Divines on this particular doctrine, and there is a lot of doctrine assumed in these chapter or in these paragraphs um, that is assumed from the last three par or the last three chapters in the confession, chapter one on scripture, chapter two on 
God, the doctrine of God in chapter three on uh, the divine decree. And I would say that this chapter is, or at least in paragraph one, is really kind of a, a part two of the decree of God. And the reason I say that is because creation uh, is really God's, what we would call ad extra works, the works that are outside of him. He's decreeing these things into existence, and therefore it's part of his eternal decree um, with regards to what happens with creation. And then divine providence, which is a chapter in chapter five, is God working out his decree um, in time. So um, that's kind of how I would preamble that. But I mean, these th this chapter is packed full of um, of doctrine that is assumed from the past two previous uh, chapters. Um, so while it may appear to be small, it's only small in summary. It is not small in content. Um, it we don't want to be deceived by that. Yeah, to emphasize a point that you had uh, made, creation is really the outworking of God's decree, or at least the initial outworking of God's decree. Um, it sets up time, it sets up man, sets up all that. So that's somewhat of the, the reasoning, uh, I would suspect, behind the, uh, uh, the confession putting it here right after God's decree, because it's the start of God's decree actually being executed. Yeah, and yeah, and that's a good point um, you bring up about the placement of the chapter. So the, the placement of this chapter is not by accident. Um, it's there for a reason. The writers did it because I, I think it was an outpouring of the decree. So they, they lay out in chapter three an overview of God's decree, what that means, what it looks like as a whole, and then they start to work it out. So pro what happens in Providence can't happen until creation takes place because providence is the working out of God's creation in time. So creation would come after that. And then you would see divine providence follow with God working in his creation. So the chapter is where it is for a very specific reason. Um, so we have to, we have to keep that in, in mind. Um, and Dr. Barcellus talks about this kind of giving some background in a good book, a good resource to use a Trinity and creation, a scriptural and confessional account by Richard Barcellus is really good. Um, he goes into great detail in paragraph one and kind of expounding the truths that are in there in chapter four of our confession. Uh, he says the decree of God is an ad intra divine work as Richard A. Mueller says, willed by the entire Godhead as a foundation of all at extra works. The decree is sometimes termed as an imminent or intrinsic divine work because its termination is in God. The execution of God's decree, however, brings us into the realm of God's external, ad extra, transient, or extrinsic works, works which produce effects or creatures. And so that would be God's decree as it relates to outside of himself. Um, and so that's really why it is where it is. Um, and it's, again, it's building upon what we see in uh, previous sections of the confession, particular chapter two, Barcellus again says, what chapter four does is confess in particular the manifestation, the very same God confessed in chapter two. This manifestation of God comprises the revelatory divine facts and creatures. It is the eternal and immutable God confessed in chapter two who manifests divine power, wisdom, and goodness in that which comes to be. So the doctrine of God is the foundation of this chapter at least in paragraph one it is, um, because if you don't understand who the Trinity is as defined by the writers of the confession, you're not going to know 
the works of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It makes no sense if taken out of the context of what the writers intended it. Um, so we have to remember that. And I think there's this tendency for us to pull out these chapters in isolation, not appreciating all of the theological background that goes into these chapters. Because this is really meant to be a summary. It's not exhaustive. Uh, our confession is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. It's meant to be a summary, but there's assumptions given behind what they're writing. Um, so we have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, for someone who wasn't a Christian to pick up our confession, they would at least be able to understand some of the things we believe, but right. at the same time, they would be confused by a lot of things because there's, there are assumptions and presuppositions in there that you do have a basic understanding of the Christian faith and such. Obviously some points are explicitly laid out in the confession, but I remember reading it at some point and being like, I know somebody who wasn't a Christian wouldn't understand what was going on here. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely takes some exposition. Um, but yeah, at a basic level, someone can go, okay, they believe, you know, one God, three persons. Okay. They believe the scriptures are the authority for what we hold to. Hmm. And then those can be expounded upon as a walking in the life of the church. Um, so I think that, um, that that's kind of the framework you have to have when going with the confession, but it's very easy to pull, just kind of isolate passages from other things. Um, without giving the context. I mean, people do that with scripture all the time. Yeah. Hey, we're just going to cherry pick this first, never mind the context. You know, we're just going to grab this one and, and throw out the rest. Um, so we have to be careful when we're doing that with these historical works as well. All right. Um, so we're going to look at a, three different points here, kind of at a very high level. Um, not going to go into as much detail as I did in my lesson, but um, what I had talked about last week to our church, uh, we had talked about what creation is and what the activity of God is in creation, that it's an eternal act of God. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, did God change when creation uh, was enacted? When the world was created, did God become the creator or was he still always the creator? We're going to talk about that a little bit. And then was the creation, is the creation story uh, poetry or history? Is it figurative um, or as an actual historical account. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Oh, getting a little controversial there. No, mm -hmm. we're definitely not strangers to that, Sean. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, Sean, you want to take away the first point? Um, sure. So let me scroll down. Sorry. Do, 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 do. This is, we're also basing this a little bit off of a, a blog post that Dan basically took his notes and turned into. Um, so if you want a little bit more, you can um, go. If you want the detailed um, overview of this, please go read the blog post. It's called Of Creation Part 1 and Part 2 should be out next week. All right. So yeah, so the first question or the first point really is what exactly is creation and what is the Trinitarian activity and the eternal act of creation? Um, so here, uh, we note that the confession does actually explicitly highlight that this is a Trinitarian act. It explicitly mentions the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And, um, that's, that's, that's very important. Genesis, uh, one, make sure to let us know that the spirit is actually involved because we, we might be inclined to think, oh, it was just the father who was, who was at creation. Uh, but even Genesis one explicitly mentions that the spirit was hovering over the waters. And uh, from other portions of the Bible, 
we know that uh, the son was also involved. This is a this is a triune act, um, and that's that's important that every single uh, member of the Godhead was part of um, part of this act. Um, and then I would probably be remiss if I talked about uh, eternal or I started talking about eternal act of creation because that is your wheelhouse, Dan. So I'll <laughs> pass that back over to you. Okay. Um, so what we mean by the eternal act of creation. So we believe as Christians, historical Orthodox Christians have confessed that God is an eternal being infinite. God is not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He doesn't change with time. He doesn't change with uh, space. And because of that, that implies that the acts of God must also be eternal. God is not acting in time. God is not changing with the times. Um, and so when we say that creation is an eternal act, it is God creating something from eternity past that has no beginning, that has no end. It just, he just is. And that act has a temporal effect, which is creation, which is what we see in creation. Um, and that is something that the, the reformed have confessed in order to consistently hold that God is eternal, but also that God is not bound by time. And we have to be very careful to hold those two um, strongly. Um, Herman Bovink says, uh, this is from his Reformed Dogmatics Volume 2, he says, creation is that act of God through which by his sovereign will he brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being. So creation is God through his eternal act, bringing a temporal effect, God making something that is not God. And I think this distinction is very important because if we don't have a proper distinction between the creation and the creator, we can start to treat God as if he is part of the creation. And I think people do this all the time when they try to apply human terms or human um, concepts to God where they should not be applied, therefore bringing God down to our level. Well, God couldn't have done this because I wouldn't have done that. Now, that kind of language is bringing God down, not distinguishing him from creation. And there is this, there's such a chasm and distinction between God and the creature that uh, using that type of language is not appropriate at all. You have to be very careful with that. Um, and again, Bavink says, he says, a deep chasm separates God's being from that of creatures. There's a huge separation. God is not even the same class of being that we are. It's a different category. Um, God is not just the highest being on the chain. He is completely separate and distinct from us. Um, so we have to be very careful when we use terms about God that we're doing so in a way that keeps that distinction as best as possible. Obviously, our language is going to be uh, limited because we are creatures of time and we can only speak in, in compartmental categories. We can't speak of eternity. Um, so we have to be very, very careful when we are using uh, terminology about God, but also understanding that our, our language is really limited. Um, so some Verses that talk about God being outside of time. We can see this in 2 Timothy 1.9 and Titus 1.2. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, um, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began in Titus 1.2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. So in both these passages, you see God working outside of time. He's not bound by time. He's not changing with the times. He is working outside of time. 
And James Dalzall talks about this. He says, literally rendered before times eternal and above times eternal, the sense is that God's intrinsic activity is not in temporal indexed event. In the context, the point is that God's good purposes toward his people are not an afterthought with him, but are eternally settled apart from the fluctuations of history. So God is working in his eternal works, his eternal acts outside of what is actually happening in time. And he was doing so um, before the world came into existence. Now, even that word before is not the best term to use because that implies time, but that's based on, that's a limitation of our language. But God was working outside of time before the world was even created. So we have to keep these things in mind when we're talking about um, eternity. Yeah, that's actually an important point to highlight when thinking about God's eternity, because, uh, and that'll flow right into the next point, actually, whether or not God changed, because um, people will say um, that, well, God became creator when he, denying an eternal cre uh, creation uh, model, God became creator um, and thus took on new attributes that he ha hadn't had before. And we would, we would deny that. Um, and getting back to the, the use of the term before, it's not proper to think about there being a before time because before requires time. We have to think about it in some sense logically, but um, there is no before there is time. There's only God. So we would not say he became creator. That would imply a change in time that uh, just doesn't exist when it comes to God. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. And going back to that, if eternity and um, divine simplicity or, or change or not positing change to God, is, or they are intimately tied together. Because if God is eternal, God is just pure act. God is not changing with time. He can't change. And therefore, nothing outside of him can um, affect or make him to be what he is not. Nothing can make outside of him can cause him to be God. Um, so that's very important. So there are, uh, I know K. Scott Oliphant um, has posited that God took on what he calls covenantal properties with creation. Um, essentially, God took on new properties um, when he created the world. Now, he has recanted those views, I will say that, but those, but it's important to note that those type of view, that type of view is out there and it's, it's a dangerous view um, that God can somehow change with his creation like in, in a sense god is bound to his creation in order to be who he is and we would deny that and the classical the orthodox have rejected that even in the early church um, divine simplicity has been held but we have to be very careful when we talk about god on these terms because if we start saying that god changed that god became a creator he didn't he didn't create before and now he's creating that implies that God is somehow bound to time. He's being measured by time because before God was not, and then he became something later on at a certain point in time. Um, so we have to be very careful when we're using that kind of language. God did not change. God did not become the creator. He's always eternally been the creator. Uh, even when the world came into existence, and we have to be very careful with our usage of those terms. And there's multiple places we can go in scripture that talk about God, not changing. Um, we can look at, or God, at least God not changing and then God not being affected by anything outside of himself. His creation is not changing him or binding him. Job 35, six through seven. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? 
if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? In other words, God is not affected by your actions at all. He just remains who he is. Um, Acts 17, where Paul is talking to the philosophers on, on uh, Mars Hill. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. It's verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him, though he is not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul is even talking about um, creation here. God made the world and everything in it, and he's the Lord of it, and he is head of it. But he makes very clear that he does not need anything. He's not worshiped with man's hands as though he needed anything. Nothing is binding him. Nothing outside of him and his creation is holding him back. He is the one who is causing us to move and to be, not the other way around. So Paul is being very clear about that here. Um, yeah, yeah, you, he, yeah, go ahead, Sean. He didn't become better when he created. And that's right. an important, that's an important exactly. point. That now, now we give honor to God and somehow he's better. He's now that we're worshiping him. No, we're, when we worship, we're just basically telling the truth. We're, we're saying what is true, regardless of whether we are there or not. Our worship doesn't add to God. God didn't become better when uh, he created. And thus there was no change in him. He is always just as good, just as perfect as he was. Yeah, that's, that's exactly that right. Yeah. Yeah. God, God doesn't need our glory. When we, when we say we glorify God or give glory to God, that doesn't mean that we, he is gaining any glory from us. God is just simply uh, receiving the praise uh, that he are, of what he already has. We're not, he's not gaining anything because of it. Mm -hmm. yep. And that's, the, that's an important point um, that Dan brought up in the article, but I don't think we've touched on yet. Um, the reason why we're going through this, this doctrine of God and creation essentially is, is so that uh, the people listening might actually, you know, learn about God and that should lead to right worship, right praise. Um, a lot of this can sometimes get abstract and dry and people aren't that interested in it, but uh, it's important to know who our God is so that mm. we would worship him rightly. If you, if you're now, nobody's going to have a perfect conception of God. Obviously it's not possible for us as limited humans to have a perfect conception of God, but we should make the attempt to know who God is uh, as much as possible. So we aren't worshiping improperly or worshiping aspects that are wrong. Essentially uh, we give the most glory to God when we, um, when we uh, know him. Uh, mm -hmm. my motto, my personal motto is, uh, there's nothing better in this life than to know God. There's nothing better to do in this life than to serve him. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It, our knowledge of God does affect everything. Um, it affects what you think of, um, salvation. It affects what you think of how he worked out his covenants. I mean, it, it affects how, he interacts with us on a daily basis, how we relate to him. And it affects everything because everything is comes back to God. Even his word, which is grounded in God himself, um, comes back to him. So all these things have implications for our doctrine that we, uh, that we confess. So having a right doctrine of God will help us to worship him properly. 
and not just worship at church, but throughout our lives. You know, a proper view of God will help us if applied correctly to live obediently in a proper fashion to what the scriptures reveal. All right. Move on to the last point. Yes, sir. Okay. Do you want to take that or should I? I can take it. Okay. Um, all right. So the last point here um, is creation. Is a creation account um, poetry or history? Is it figurative? Uh, is it literal? Uh, this is a point that because we're right now in, in to give some background to this lesson, uh, we're going through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith um, as a systematic theology class in our church's Sunday school. So right now we're in chapter, I finish up chapter four next week. So this was my notes for the first part of the chapter. Um, and one of, and we're using Pastor Waldron's commentary on the topic. And he talks about uh, these type of things in his book, in his commentary, about the importance of understanding the creation account as being literal. It's not figurative. Um, when it says day, it means day. It doesn't mean age. Um, so uh, having a proper understanding of those things is important because they can have implications um, not only from a inerrancy perspective with regards to scripture. You know, what, are the scriptures actually accurate when they say something? Do we believe it to be true? Or are we just going to skirt around it? Um, but what about Adam as being a real man? Because Adam plays into our redemptive history. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Those who are in Adam, they die. Those who are in Christ are raised alive, are made alive. So if Adam wasn't real, then that really doesn't make any sense with what Paul's saying from a covenantal perspective. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't make any sense that we would be saved for, some, uh, for what some figurative imaginary uh, man did by a real man. Uh, how can we be saved from uh, by a real man to uh, Jesus Christ from what a fake man supposedly did, you know, 3000 years before or whatever it was. So having a proper historical understanding of these uh, of these passages is important because it has uh, it can have gospel implications if taken too far. And we have to be very careful about that. So obviously we as believers would say that these uh accounts about Adam and Eve and the fall and creation. They really happen. They're historical accounts. We have no reason in the text to believe that they're not. Um, you basically have to throw out the rest of Genesis if you uh, were to say that this was not historical. Um, and that's a point that Waldron brings up very clearly. He says, if we take Genesis 12 and following as historical narrative, and it would be radi a radical critical position to deny the historicity of Abraham then it cannot be doubted that Genesis 1 to 2 is intended also to be understood as such. So if we're going to take what Abraham's account was as history and the miracles that happened there, then we would have to, to be consistent. We have to say Genesis 1 through 2 are also part of that historical narrative. Um, so it would be really ridiculous to think that there's no reason to think this is not historical narrative. It's really just in an imposition of, presuppositions by those who do not like what the text says. It's really that simple. Um, it could be maybe they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the supernatural works of God that he could 
create the world out of nothing. So we, in order to make this fit with our presuppositions, we have to come up with an isogetical story in order to uh, make this work. Um, this is the same kind of thinking that goes into the whole day age controversy. No, it, I believe that evolution is true. Uh, you know, God creating the earth in a literal day doesn't make any sense. It's not consistent with that. So I'm just going to impose that presupposition onto the text and make it say what it does not say. Um, that would be, it would be ridiculous for a Jew reading Genesis at the time to think that day meant millions of years. Um, it, that's one thing that Walter brings out. I mean, the Darwinianism did not come on the scene until the 19th century, long after Genesis was written. Uh, they would have had no concept of millions of years and the earth being created over such a long time like that. That's ridiculous. That's what we would call an anachronism. You're reading back into history something that's not meant to be there. You're reading your time period back into history. To so be very, very careful about that. Yeah, uh, the day age um, theory doesn't really work with other parts of scripture also. Um, you, you, you'll, you'll run into issues. For example, this, what is the Sabbath command? Six days shall that labor and do all thy work. When the seventh, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord uh, thy God, and thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy maid ser manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within their gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it so you'll note day is being used all over the place in there it's referring back to the creation and um there's there's not a distinction being made there in the sabbath command we obviously recognize that's talking about a literal week the sabbath command and uh for the jews every every saturday is going to be their sabbath they're not expecting millions of years you're right and especially when you when you get down to it the people that are trying to fit in millions of years when they say age those are not necessarily the same amount of times it's not like 10 million years and 10 million years and 10 million years they're variable length um so should we be expecting a variable length work week like it, it it's it starts to fall apart really quickly the only reason i see that you would need to read genesis in that way is because you're trying to fit in um, evolutionary concepts or deep, uh, whatever the term is, I think it's deep time concepts because mm. you think that's what the scientific, what's what the science says. And without getting into creationism and all that, um, we would, we would disagree, but ultimately it, it is actually very important as, as Dan brought up, um, we need a literal atom. I know some people still at least have a literal atom, but some don't, uh, we do need a, uh, a a literal Adam, the, the genealogies, Jesus is said to descend from Adam. And I forget which genealogy it is. It's in one of the gospels, but it goes all the way back to Adam. So does, did his genealogy come from someone who didn't exist? You're, you're, it's creating all sorts of problems. And ultimately, I think you, you've left a, a gaping hole in your hermeneutics, because if what we're saying is true, that um, Genesis should be taken literally, um, in terms of it is representing history accurately. Um, and you're able to say, oh, no, that's poetry. Or, oh, no, that's talking about something else. Um, what's now to stop you from looking at other things that are supposed to be taken historically and being like, oh, no, that's not historical. That's, mm. um, 
Yeah, then so, everything's up for grabs at that exactly. point. Exactly. You, you've lost a significant guard. Not that everybody goes that way. I'm not trying to say that everybody uh, who believes this is all of a sudden like the worst kind of liberal. But um, you do leave yourself open to, oh, well, you know, the Exodus account, that um, that's not meant to be taken historically literal. Um, there was a man named Moses, but these plagues didn't happen or, or whatever the case might be. You're, you've left yourself in a precarious spot there because we think the text is obviously saying this is history um and if you can if you can say oh it's not history you can do that in other spots too yeah and when we do go and say that passages are actually figurative for instance daniel 7 um or revelation uh we do believe those are pointing to real historical acts just not in their literal descriptions being mm -hmm. actual historical accounts but we let the text do that. We don't impose our own mm -hmm. uh, eisegetical views on the text. So th that comes from a proper hermeneutic. But uh, that's all we got for today. Um, and we appreciate you joining us. Uh, be sure to check out the blog post. Um, it was put up today. And it's called Of Creation Part 1. If you want a more detailed um description in-depth view of what we talked about today please for sure to check that out um, but with that we will sign off thank you for joining us today and we'll talk to you um actually on monday we'll have an episode coming out on monday we'll have pastor well, tom hicks i was gonna ask do you want to release the episode on monday or do you want to wait till next saturday to release it to release it on the schedule mm. Uh, maybe we can maybe we can save the schedule. So next week, be on the lookout for um, for an episode. We're trying to stick mm -hmm. with the Saturday schedule as much as possible. Uh, sorry, but we sorry will be guys. Yeah, our, you, you, our you schedules. Got an early episode, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> we'll be okay. Let's put it this way: we'll be recording it on Monday with Pastor Hicks, but we'll plan to release it next week. But uh, all right, with that, uh, everyone, take care. We'll talk to you later. God bless.